Hashtag murder may contain explicit and disturbing material and may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Hashtag murder. Woo. <laughs> I'm Scar. And I'm Alex. And we're millennials who love murder. And Charlie Manson. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I meant to point out. You're wearing <laughs> your... <laughs> my cult shirt. <laughs> you're, it's got the Kool-Aid man on it. And it yeah. says, let's start a cult! Exclamation point. <laughs> Whitney hates this shirt so much. It. But she wants it. to be a cult leader. She wants to be a cult leader, but she doesn't appreciate the humor in drinking the Kool-Aid. Hey, I think it's funny. Uh, and you know, it was actually not Kool-Aid. It was Flavor-Aid. They oh, got the off-brand. Off-brand Gatorade? Yes. You can't do that. I know. Uh, I don't know what flavor it was, but it was literally called Flavor-Aid. It wasn't Kool-Aid. They That's didn't spring for gross. the... You get. You're dying. You didn't even <laughs> spring for the good shit? The name brand stuff. Oh, man. I never really drink... I'm not really into Gatorade. No. No, I'm I'm into alcohol. <laughs> she likes drinking. Li- she likes liquid IV. I do. If I'm drinking something other than water, uh, it's gonna be alcohol. I'm not gonna waste it on a Coke or a Sprite unless I go to McDonald's. Oh, they do. They have more bubbles in Those diet cokes, man. They get they you. put they put more uh, bubbles in the carbonation to make it taste better. <laughs> I believe it. Mm-hmm. Uh, a Diet Coke with a basket of fries. Oh, yes. Game over. I really only go there once a month. Um, maybe not even once a month. Maybe once every couple months. Oh, You know, it's not a podcast recording if Dustin doesn't call in the middle of it. Um, okay, well, I guess we're just going to get right into it now, yeah. since I have no idea we were discussing before yeah, uh, we didn't even start. Uh, well, we're we're going to dive into part two here. And we're and excited, because once again, just a reminder, if everyone forgot, I don't know anything about this. This man <laughs> is unhinged. Uh, and honestly, the only thing I remember from the first episode is that his mom sold him <laughs> for, for a beer. beer. <laughs> or traded him, he didn't sell him. Yeah. <laughs> She uh, probably did not get gifts on Mother's Day, if I had to guess. <laughs> no, 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 no. All right, um, let's do it. Yeah. So when we left you, we told you about Charlie and his wonderful life spent in basically prison or like homes for boys, etc. And now he's out of prison. And we are going to dive into like how he got his little, quote, family oh. together. Okay. And all the people they murdered. All right. Yeah, let's do it. I hate to spoil it for you. They <laughs> murdered people. I did know that. All right. <laughs> okay. So basically, Charlie is super good at manipulating people yep. and getting them to do his bidding and whatever he does, um, especially the women. Okay. He loves manipulating women. All right. Yep. Love that for him. So let's talk about the family. Oh boy. The All family. Right. Let's do it. All right. So sounds good. We're in 1967, and oh, it's the year Tommy was born. Oh, Tommy. <laughs> And Charlie just got released from prison. He wanted to stay in forever. Because if you guys remember, he just wanted to stay in prison. He was perfectly... He loved prison. He loved it. That's the only, like... He did really well there. ...structure that he had ever in his life. Yeah. So he liked it. Yep. Uh, well, anyway, they said no. So he makes the move from San Francisco to Berkeley, which is technically a violation of his parole, but he did notify his parole officer immediately and got transferred to a different parole officer named Roger Smith, who was a criminology doctoral researcher. Oh. 
Okay. Um, and this is not good. Not oh. good for Charlie. Oh, okay. Uh, Roger Smith actually worked at the Height Asbury Free Medical Clinic up until, until 1968, and both Manson and his family frequented when they were living in Height. Okay. And Height is like a old district in San Francisco. Oh, okay. All right. So, Manson eventually gets permission from his parole officer, Roger Smith, to move to the Height District, and this is when he first takes LSD. Whoa. The yeah. hell of a drug. Especially when you're already <laughs> uh, fucking psychotic. A little, a little unhinged, yeah. Not the best uh, drug to take if you're a little unhinged. Yeah. Maybe try pot first. Yeah. So, uh, Roger Smith and another founder of the clinic actually received funding from the NIH, National Institute of Health, to study the effects of drugs like LSD and meth on the counterculture movement that was happening at the time. Oh. So this is where Manson and his family start to kind of come into play here. Okay. Because he wanted... So wait, they were doing drug research? On the family. Oh, and like how on it affected, purpose. On purpose. Oh. Yeah, he wanted Manson to take the drugs. Okay, just to see how he'd react and... Yep. Okay, all right, cool. A lot of the patients at the clinic actually became involved as subjects in the research, including Manson and his members. All right. They were, like, the main source of, like, the resource. Like, yeah. they're, they're the main project. You know, um, one of my friends, Shelby. Hi, Shelby. Um, she is a psychiatrist, and her, like, main focus, uh, I don't know if she actually went into this, but she wanted to do drug studies on people with PTSD from war. Oh. I know. I thought that was really cool. Mm -hmm. So, I guess this started a long time ago. Yep. Okay, cool. Neat. So, Manson was one of the subjects being observed for the effects of LSD, and it's noted by one of the researchers, David Smith, not his parole officer, David Smith. There's a lot, oh, of Smith, okay. a lot of Smiths here. Okay. Uh, and that it was the most abrupt change in behavior that he'd ever seen in his career. Oh, like in a good way? Not in a good way, no. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Because, like, Manson was kind of okay unless he was drunk or taking drugs. Oh. And that's when he would start Everything become... got amplified. Yes. Okie dokie. Okay. Yeah, so basically, Charlie would take the LSD and then go fucking berserk. Oh, all right. So, around the same time is when Charlie starts preaching his uh, beliefs okay. to his followers uh, right. that were mostly young females, and he was, like, gaining even more of them. Yep, so he was the, he was the ringleader here. Yes. Okay. Uh, he basically took, like, a mixture of Scientology, the Bible, the Beatles. The yes. Beatles? Yes, I said that, the Beatles. <laughs> what? Like their lyrics and shit? Yep. Oh, okay. Oh, you're gonna, you're gonna love this. Oh my. It's coming right. up soon. You're okay. gonna love it. <laughs> uh, and other stuff, basically, just a little mixture of everything to make his own, quote, religion. Oh, And he, like, loved that, like, free love philosophy that was super popular at this time. Oh, okay. I'm here for that. Yep. Um, maybe not. <laughs> maybe not the way he did it. Yeah. Okay. So it's pretty well known that Charlie had a connection to the Beatles in the early stages of his cult. Huh. Charlie was good friends with Dennis Wilson and met other music industry players while being friends with Dennis, which increased his thirst for stardom even more because he wanted to be a rock star. That's what Charlie wanted to do. Oh. Mm -hmm. A huh. lot of people think that if he did become a rock star like he intended to, he wouldn't have murdered anybody. 
Interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay. All so, right. So, all he wanted to do was be a famous rock star, and that that's that. Okay. And he's kind of meeting his connections with the uh, members of the Beatles. So, because of his connection to the Beatles, Charlie would often quote the Beatles and the Bible when he was making speeches to his members. Okay. I'm here for the Beatles, not here for the Bible. Yeah. <laughs> so. Okay. Uh, Manson actually thought that the four Beatles band members were the four angels that were referenced in Revelation 9. Oh my. Yeah, he's taking it up a whole nother level. Okay. He's putting, he's making connections where there aren't any. Yes. Okay. Manson felt a strong connection to the Beatles lyrics and thought that they were directly talking to him. He especially loved the Beatles' White Album, which is where he got the term Helter Skelter. Okay. Referring to the race war he was trying to ignite. Huh. Uh, do they have a song called Helter Skelter? Mm-hmm. Oh. Yep. Don't think I've ever heard that. Okay, yep. cool. I can't remember if it's the name of the song, or like the title, or if it's a term inside one of the songs, but I think it's a like a title of a song. Oh. Okay, we'll have to listen to that. (laughs) Yeah. So on the White Album, he thought that the song Rocky Raccoon referred to black people, and the song Happiness is a Warm Gun was about getting some firearms to start the revolution rather than what it was actually about, which was sex. Oh. So yeah, Charlie's just taking all these lyrics. He thinks they're all about him, and he's making them into something they're not. Okay. All right. Yeah, he mm. just used whatever was in the album to justify what he, the message he was trying to portray. Yeah, which sounds a little schizophrenic. Whenever you think people are talking directly to you, and they are not. Or they're talking about something completely different. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that's where we're at. All right. Uh, one of the cult members actually stated that he didn't think Charlie cared at all about starting a race war till the White Album came out. Uh... Before that, all he cared about was sex and orgies. Oh, well, okay. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so um, I found a website that actually broke down each song of the White Album that showed what song was actually about versus like what Manson interpreted it to be. Oh. And like he was able to find violence and like sick reasoning in every single lyric in the album in order to like rationalize his ideologies to his followers. Okay. All right. Um, I, so I didn't actually know a lot about Scientology besides that Tom Cruise believes in it. <laughs> Yeah, I don't really know anything about it either. So, okay. uh, I did like a little, I've read like a couple of articles about it, and this is basically the gist of it. Okay. The Church of Scientology has the core belief that the human is an immortal spiritual being, and it is just holding residence in a physical body. Okay, I, I can kind of get down with that. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of like reincarnation. Yeah. So. Okay. But that Scientolo- Scientologists believe that your soul can come back into extraterrestrial cultures as well as bodies in the past and future. Oh. So like- owning your own planet in yeah the, in the afterlife yes Okey-dokey. this is why a lot of uh like <laughs> famous people rich people buy into this okay yeah it's a cult. they love themselves it's a cult in its own yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so okay. scientologists believe that all humans have the same sort of innate power to be more than what they are if they clear themselves of unwanted behaviors ah okay it's like a religious self-help class to make you like live up to your potential essentially yeah it's like i don't want to 
if I just quit smoking, then I'll I will be... <laughs> I will be ruler of the world. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Scientology is really popular among Hollywood, and it's known for some hidden sentiments denouncing gay rights and women's rights. Oh boy. Scientology as a whole reminds me. Of, do you remember the sex cult Nexium? You know, I did watch the documentary mm-hmm. on that. Well, do you remember I any... part of it? Because I it got, got a little too it got much. Kind of boring. It got really boring after like episode like three. Yeah, it was like the same story over and over again. But um, basically, like my interest, but you continuously like give money to the like cause quote uh, to be higher up in the rankings among the the cult yeah those tides aren't enough you got to give more than 10 percent yep you gotta keep <laughs> okay. giving and giving and giving yeah and then the church is not taxed it's great mm-hmm. love that love that for them <laughs> uh, should we make this a church <laughs> the church of hashtag the, per, the church of big boob energy <laughs> yeah. oh shit so manson's first official family member is someone he meets at the uc berkeley campus named mary brunner oh she was a 23-year-old librarian assistant working at the campus library. Uh, oh, did, she was my wife. Did you? Yeah, she's my wife. <laughs> really? Uh, did Did he go to college? Or he was just there? He just hung out at the college. Because uh, that's like the perfect place. That's where place. all the women are. That's where all the cute women are that he can like manipulate and get into his family. Oh, uh, okay. All right. That makes sense. Yep. She had just recently graduated from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and he convinces her to let him crash at her house for a few nights and uh, we all know this story as it's he happened. He never left. He never left. Yep. Hundreds of times he never left. Yep. <laughs> I had a boyfriend like that. Uh, quote unquote boyfriend. Um, he literally. <laughs> was it Dustin? <laughs> no. Uh, no, I was dating this guy and he wrecked his car and he worked for me. And then I was like, oh, you can just crash at my place. And then he literally never left. Oh. Yep. That's nice. And then I gave him the ultimatum <laughs> a few months later. I was like, either I work with you or I live with you. I'm not doing both. Yep. No. And then I, <laughs> and then I fired him. And then I kicked him out of my apartment. So he, 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 you didn't even get it either one. No. You, get, you don't. You lose both. He got none. <laughs> oh my god, that's really funny. Okay, keep going. And on uh, April first, nineteen sixty-eight, Mary gave birth to Valentine Michael Manson. Whoa. AKA Pooh Bear. Oh, Pooh. First baby of the family. And this is Manson's biological son. Oh my. All mm-hmm. right, Valentine. Oh, okay. Yeah. A lot of love. Sure. Oh, yes. All right. So he then meets Lynette Frome, a.k.a. Squeaky. Squeaky? I'll tell you how she gets that nickname in a little bit. Uh, It's gross. Oh, okay. Uh, Lynette (laughs) ends up moving in with Manson and Brunner as well. And after Squeaky moved in, Manson continued to bring even more women to live with them and got as many as 18 women living with them at the same time. Oh, my. And... Charlie's, he's not all that cute. No, he looks really like squirrely and he's <laughs> he short. very squirrely. He's short and kind of scrawny. So yeah. Yeah. But also, I don't know. I feel like I was very impressionable <laughs> as a young person. He, he's got away with the words and yeah, the ladies. I maybe would have fallen for old Charlie. Okay. <laughs> so uh, Manson knows the type of people to look for as, you know, all cult leaders follow a similar MO. Yeah. So his focus was on emotionally insecure people who were vulnerable and primarily his family members all right. were always young women. Yep. Okay. Manson frequently used sex and LSD to convince his followers to submit willingly to him so he would be completely in control of them. Yep. Because they're all just drugged up all the time. Manson would actually have group sessions where they all took LSD and he would purposely give everyone else like way more of the drug than he was taking so he could stay in control of his body and like the situation. Oh, but they wouldn't be able to. Okay. 
By the end of April 1968, Charlie had at least 20 followers, most of them being young women, and he was doing this completely in front of his parole officer, who was working at the health clinic observing this whole situation. What? So the health, or the parole officer was just like, yeah. you look like you're doing well. Yeah. You're surrounded by women. Here, take some more drugs. <laughs> Oh, no. Okay. Charlie was spinning the whole flower child, free of love, living in a commune lifestyle, and all his followers seemed to really love it and be intrigued by it. Okay. And I'm sure the drugs helped, too. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. he was well-known in the community for his hippie nature and convincing his followers that they were reincarnated from the original Christians, and many of his followers believed that he was reincarnated from Jesus Christ himself. Okay. All right. Uh... Yeah. I don't think you're Jesus. But. No, the world hey. does not revolve around you. Well, it kind of does because you're the center of it, but eh. yeah. <laughs> not for you, Charlie. Yeah. So Charlie continued to grow the cult member party through frequent drug use and prostitution. Okay. His parole officer was completely aware of what he was doing and no one from law enforcement did anything at all to stop him. What is with uh -huh. these men being friends with... They're just buddies. Yeah. They're like, they're like keep yeah. doing you. Keep do We're just studying you. Keep doing you. Yeah. Keep Let us keep interviewing you. Oh, Lord. Uh, he did get arrested once for trying to prevent one of his cult members getting arrested, but all this did was, like, slap him on the wrist and add three years of probation. Oh. Because that worked. You know, okay. The first time. All right. God damn it. Mm-hmm. <sighs> so, the family eventually moves from San Francisco to L.A. to pursue Charlie's music career. Oh. I was going to say, when did he pick this up? Uh, he learned to play guitar while in prison. Oh, so, okay. So, with his parole officer's permission, of course, and they, <laughs> they crashed the family bus on the way. Uh, from the move? From... Yeah, from San Francisco <laughs> to L.A. Yeah, they okay. crashed the family bus into a ditch. They were probably doing a bunch of drugs. You think it was a Volkswagen? It was a Volkswagen bus. Uh, no, 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 no. I think it was, they were using a Volkswagen bus at first, but I think they moved on to a school bus. Oh, like and an actual like, bus? Yeah, like, a, like an actual <laughs> school bus, because oh. they like ripped it out and like made it into like a sex machine. Hey, they were the original, um, what's it called? Tiny house? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Yes. <laughs> okay. Uh, when the police rolled up on the scene, they found all of the family naked and sleeping, including Charlie's <laughs> newborn baby. Uh, he was arrested and released a couple days later with a minor drug charge. Alrighty. Uh, now, this uh, bus was a school bus, and it was redone to, like, fit the hippie nature of the group. Uh, they painted it, added flower rugs, and decor inside. I love that. Mm -hmm. I'm totally here for that. Oh, yeah. Uh, if, if Dusty ever wants to buy a school bus and we refit it, we just drive around the country mm -hmm. and Canada and Mexico and wherever else you can get on a bus, I'm here for it. Oh, yeah. So, Charlie eventually steps up his cult beliefs and pivots to, like, a doomsday cult and convinced his family that a race war is imminent between the black and white population in America. Manson is a known white supremacist and was convincing his family that black people in America were going to wipe out all the white people, except for them, because they are too stupid to survive on their own, and they would need Manson as their leader. Oh my god. If he yes. would have just stuck with the love and peace and hippie... Yep. That would have been great. That would have been fantastic. I would have been there. Yep. But this whole race war and it's, it's not good. No. It's not. really, it's bad. Yep. <laughs> so now we're going to get into a little bit of his family members and how they came to get, get a part of the cult. Okay. 
So one of the main members is Charles, a.k.a. Tex Watson. Love Tex. Um, okay. Yep. He was born in Dallas, Texas on December 2nd, 1945. All right. Yep. Nice little Sagittarius. <laughs> We're easily impressionable. <laughs> he grew up in a Methodist family that believed the best way to achieve the American dream was to work hard, get an education, and live a moral life. Okay. Which you did not do. <laughs> uh, for a while, he did that. He was an A student, star athlete playing football, basketball, and track, and he was even a youth group leader at his church. Oh, gotta be careful of those. Mm-hmm. They'll get you. Yep. After graduating, he went into North Texas State University in Denton. While in college, Tex needed to make some more money, so he got a job as a baggage handler with Braniff Airlines. Oh, okay. One of the perks for working for an airline is getting to fly for free. Yeah, that's the only reason. I've looked into, like, Delta and United, Mm -hmm. and that's literally the only reason why I'd want to work there. Yep. (laughs) So Tex used these to his advantage and flew to Los Angeles about eight times in two months to visit an old frat brother. Okay. He quickly fell in love with L.A. and never came back. Tex went to L.A. with the idea that he would finish his schooling at Cal State Los Angeles, but he dropped out after less than a semester and began selling weed full-time. All right. Sure. Mm-hmm. American dream. <laughs> uh, one evening, he picked up a hitchhiker on Sunset. That hitchhiker turned out to be none other than Dennis Wilson, the drummer for the Beach Boys. Oh, Why was he hitchhiking? Who the fuck knows? Uh, (laughs) Tex drove Wilson to his house where the rest of the family was at that time. Tex recalls that the first thing I felt was a sort of gentleness and embracing kind of acceptance and love. Because that's what they do. They love bomb you. Sure. Yeah. Yep. So Tex says that it was the sense of community that drew him in. Tex moved in with Manson and the family at Spawn Ranch in November of 1968. And it was George Spawn who gave Tex his nickname because he immediately placed his Texas accent. Okay. Uh, So this is where things go downhill. Oh, so the whole family was living at this ranch? Yep. Oh, who's George? Is he in on it too? Yeah, he's in on it too. Oh, Mm -hmm. okie dokie. All right. Skip down to the next person who is Bobby Boussolil. Boussolil? Bo-so-lito. I don't know. It looks French. Little, little, little. <laughs> Bobby was born November 6, 1947 in Santa Barbara, California. Okay. Bobby was the first of five children, having two brothers and two sisters. Bobby had a typical teenage lifestyle besides like being sentenced to one year to reform school when he was 12. Oh. We all love a reform school. Love a good reform school. <laughs> uh, the only reason, like, we could find any sense of him being there was because he, like, ran away with a series of pranks. So some of them probably just got dangerous. Oh, like egging cars and shit? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, all right, cool. Uh, Bobby always had a passion for music and arts and had dreams of becoming a professional musician. All right. Just like Charlie. Just, yep. Out of the reform school, he made his way to L.A. to pursue his dreams. He landed his first professional music gig at the age of 17. Oh, wow. That's Uh, young. The gig was relatively short-lived, and he soon left to follow the counterculture music scene in San Francisco. Okay. There he played in multiple bands and founded his own band, the Electric Chamber Orchestra. Oh. Isn't that cool? That's neat. Cool name. The band decided their name was too cumbersome and agreed to change it to the orchestra. Like O-R-K. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. That's fun. Okay. Uh, this band even played alongside the Grateful Dead at one point. Oh, wow. Yeah. Don't know them, but I what? know they're famous. Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, so they played at a lot of underground psychedelic venues. So, like, that's the kind of music they played. Mm. So, Bobby soon found himself in the same scene as filmmaker Kenneth Anger. 
Oh, anger. Anger. All right. Mm -hmm. By the age of 19, Kenneth was referring to Bobby as his protege, and the two were living together. Bobby appeared in a couple of films and a soft porn western film. Oh. I guess like Brokeback Mountain. I don't know. (laughs) One One day, Kenneth found a kilogram of weed that Bobby had bought using money that he had bartered from Kenneth. A kilogram? It's a lot of weed. (laughs) This upset Kenneth, and he was kicked him out. Bobby met Charles Manson while he was playing music at some roadhouse in L.A. Bobby lived with Gary Hinman for a short time and in the same house that he murdered him in. Oh, wait. That's one of the murders. (laughs) Gary? Gary Hinman. Yeah, one of the murders. Oh. Murder victims, yep. Oh, so he lived in the the fancy house. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. But uh, Bobby started spending a lot of time at the ranch and around Manson and the girls, and he basically never left. Okay. Got roped in. Yep. All right. And now we have Leslie Van Hooten. Hooten? Hooten. Is she a hoot and a half? Hooten? I don't know. <laughs> so, Leslie was born on August 23rd, 1949 in Altadena, California. Okay. She was the second child in a pretty normal middle-class family. Her dad was an automotive auctioneer, oh. and her mom was a school teacher. Okay. Leslie has one older brother, and her family adopted a young boy and girl from Korea that had been orphaned. Oh. Which is really nice. Yeah, that's cool it's said by multiple people that her parents were doting and very generous and they did everything that they could for their kids as good parents do yeah in 1963 her parents got divorced her dad moved out and all the kids stayed with their mom leslie took this very hard and she quickly started down a dark path oh boy she started high school as an athletic and outgoing girl and he was even crowned homecoming queen twice oh but she started popular yes but as soon as this happened she started drifting away from extracurricular activities and started experimenting with drugs and became sexually active okay she was smoking marijuana lsd doing acid on a very regular basis and then ran away to san francisco with her high school boyfriend at one point Uh, okay leslie even states later that when she was 17 she got pregnant and her mom forced her to have an abortion which deeply affected her relationship with her family yeah that needs to be the person's decision who Mm -hmm. is having the baby not the family's decision yep yeah okay so in 1967 leslie graduated high school and moved in with her dad and started attending a business college studying to become a legal secretary okay leslie became interested in spiritual betterment through yoga techniques and planned on living a spiritual yoga community love that okay the summer of 1968, when she was 19, she met Bobby Beausoleil. Beausoleil? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> she met Bobby and okay. uh, Catherine, a.k.a. Gypsy, Cher, and began traveling with them. Oh, okay. In September of 1968, they took her to Spawn Ranch to meet Charles Manson. Okay. She returned to the ranch three weeks later and never left. All right. Yep. Uh, she was actually the youngest member of the family at the time at the age of 19. Oh, wow. And she was uh, completely intrigued and mesmerized by Manson. Okay. Yep. Good deal. All right. So now we have our next famous member of the cult. Oh, sorry. Family. Oh, yep. Family. Uh, Susan Atkins was born on May 7th, 1948 in California. Okay. There isn't a whole lot about her younger life, like recorded or noted or anything. Uh, She did sing in the choir at church and helped care for her mother who had cancer. Oh, okay. Her mother passed away from her cancer when she was 15 years old. Susan was 15 years old, not the bomb. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) After the death of her mother, Susan's father became an alcoholic and the two started fighting a lot. Oh, boy. Susan ended up dropping out of high school her junior year and she moved to San Francisco. 
Okay. She worked as a telemarketer for a little bit, but quickly found herself poor, lonely, and depressed. Oh, Susan. And vulnerable to a cult. Yeah. Uh, she quit her telemarketing job and started waiting tables at a local coffee shop. Okay. There, she met a couple of escaped convicts and oh. decided to hit the road with them. Oh. They were like, hey, we just left jail. Do you want to go Come on a with road us. trip with us? Yeah, how about it? <laughs> okay. So, Susan committed several armed robberies with them, but eventually got caught in Oregon. Okay. After three months in jail, Susan was placed on probation and went back to San Francisco. All right. Back in San Fran, Susan became a topless dancer, dancing in a show called Witches' Sabbath. Ooh, I like that. Organized by the Church of Satan founder, Anton LaVey. Oh. Oh. Okay. Huh. So, Susan also quit this job. At 19, Susan found herself living in an apartment with dope dealers, bouncing from job to job, and dob to dob. Fuck. Dob to dob. Dob to dob. At 19, Susan found herself living in an apartment with some drug dealers, bouncing from job to job and from house to house. Okay. Susan was looking for life's meaning, and one night, Charles Manson shows up at the apartment. Oh boy. Serendipity. Yep, to buy some drugs. Uh, He whipped out his guitar and started singing The Shadow of Your Smile, and Susan recalls that he mesmerized her. She told him how much she loved listening to his music, and a few minutes later, the two were in her room having sex. Hey, get it, girl. That escalated quickly. (laughs) Over the next few days, Charles introduced Susan to other family members, and she was eager to join them on their travels. Okay. When the family got fake IDs, Susan got the name Sadie Glutz and spent a year and a half traveling around the Southwest with the other Manson family members. They move around a lot. They do. And his childhood was also all over the place. Yes. Okay. Uh, Apparently, Susan loved attention, and this often put her in the hot water with Manson. Oh, because he wanted the attention. Yes. Oh, boy. Okay. Susan was often blamed for getting family contracted with the clap. Oh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> hey, a little pink pill will clear that up real yep. quick. <laughs> and it's reported that she was kicked out of the family for a while. Oh. I guess getting all those STDs doesn't help. Uh, <laughs> Susan was also part of the group that was arrested for giving LSD to a local group of kids. Oh, yes. shouldn't be doing that. Yeah. No, don't give drugs to kids. No. Nope. In 1968, <laughs> Susan gave birth to a baby boy. Manson was not the father, but ah. he did help deliver the baby. Okay. How does he know he wasn't the father? Well, who knows? Yeah. She named him... Zazozazi Zadfrak. <laughs> what? Give me that one more time. Zazozazi Zadfrak. Okay. A lot of Z's. That's what I thought you said. Yep. Okay. This baby was later removed from her care and adopted. All right. Hopefully Thank the goodness. name was changed. I fucking hope so. <laughs> Susan spent time recovering at the Fountain of the World, a oh. nearby religious retreat. Oh. And then in 1969, Susan moved out to Spawn Ranch. All right. So she went back. Yep. Okie dokie. So. All right. Last, we have Patricia Krenwinkel. Oh, that's a fun name. She was born on December 3rd, 1947 in Los Angeles. We got a lot of Sagittarius. Yes, we do. (laughs) Oh, no. Her her dad was an insurance agent and her mom was a homemaker. Okay. Patricia had one older half-sister, Charlene, from her mom's previous marriage. There was six and a half years between the two of them. Okay. Patricia was pretty lonely during her teenage years and she was bullied for her weight and an 
endocrine endocrine condition that caused her to have excess hair on her arms. Oh. It was reported that... I bet she had some good, like, head hair, though. Yeah, probably. Okay. Uh, It was reported that Patricia got hooked on diet pills that her sister gave her to help overcome her weight. Okay. So you could say that she had a lot of insecurities in her young life. Yeah. All right. Her parents got divorced when she was 17, and Patricia stayed in California with her dad while her mom moved out to Alabama. (laughs) Bama. Bama. Roll Tide. (laughs) After high school, Patricia moved to Alabama to live with her mom and attended a Catholic college. Okay. Patricia had previously taught Sunday school and thought about becoming a nun. Oh. But she ended up dropping out of college after only one semester. All right. She moved moved in with Charlene to a Manhattan Beach apartment. Okay. It's been noted that Charlene was addicted to heroin. Oh, okay. And in September of 1967, Patricia met Lynette Fromm. Is that squeaky? That's squeaky. Okay. She met squeaky, Mary Brunner, and Charles Manson through Charlene's friends and acquaintances. (sighs) Manson later described Patricia as not a prize winner for beauty, but she had smarts. Oh, uh, double-sided compliment. He's like, uh, you're ugly, but you're smart. (laughs) Yeah, cute. She's got some brains. (laughs) Just like Susan Atkins, Patricia, and Manson made love. Then she decided to go out with Manson and the girls to San Francisco. Okay. Patricia left her car and final paycheck behind, but made sure to take her father's credit card. Hey. Patricia (laughs) would later state that Manson seemed like her way out. Yeah. And like her salvation at the time. Yep. Patricia, soon to be known as Katie, joined the group traveling on the caravan. Okay. Patricia wrote her dad a letter, and this is the last time he would hear from her for over two years. All right. Patricia mm-hmm. turned Katie. Okay. Yes. So the, the whole group's together. And uh, that's where we're going to end part two. Oh, So okay. now you guys got a little background on how Charlie started the family, got out of jail, and that's, right. where we're, that's where we're at. There's a lot going on here. There's a lot of librarians. Yes. <laughs> a lot, and of, a lot of December babies. Yeah. A lot of my wife's, because she's a librarian. Well, a library man i don't know what the super supervisor i don't remember her title sure uh she's a library assistant and also a sagittarius oh lord and oh, a december man. sagittarius oh no oh goodness gracious uh well that was fun um i like learning their little backgrounds yeah shout out to laura for that because she did all the background info for them oh mm-hmm. thank you laura we appreciate you yes you saved me lots of time <laughs> yeah uh, um, and hopefully this melds together with episode one because I really don't remember anything oh, about Jesus. that. <laughs> it should because it's like we gave you episode one where we like talked about Manson's background. Oh, uh, you're right. Then we talked about how he started the cult and some of the family members, and then we're gonna talk about the murders in the next one. Oh my goodness, I'm so excited! Mm-hmm. Yay! All right, uh, that was my stomach rumbling. <laughs> that was so loud. We're going to go get a snack, and yeah. then we're going to start episode three. Yes. All right, well, thanks for hanging out. Love you. Love bye. You, bye. Don't join a cold even if it seems fun. Bye. Bye. <laughs> good job, Dougie. You did so good. All right, well, let's get into Manson part three. Yep. Four? Three. Two. So part three. Three. Okay. So part three of the Manson Chronicles is all about the murders. Oh my. Okay. And how Charlie was able to convince the family to go murder people for him. Okay. So for a two week span in the summer of 1969, things heated up and eventually boiled over for the Manson family. In the summer of 69. Okay. The Hinman murder is where we're going to start. Here. All right. So Charles Watson, a.k.a. Tex, robbed a drug dealer named Bernard Lotsapapa Crow. 
Lots of papa. Lots of papa. I like that. Uh, to get some money for Manson. Okay. Bernard threatens Charlie and the family. Manson then shoots Crow on July 1st, 1969, and dumps his body. Oh, my. So Manson is now getting paranoid because Crow was a member of the Black Panthers, supposedly. Oh, okay. Supposedly. We don't even know if that's true. Yeah. So he's hustling around trying to scrounge up some money so that he can get the family to move away from Spawn Ranch in L.A., where the compound was. Okay. In the meantime, he's beefing up the defense mechanisms at the camp compound with night patrols and guards. Oh, uh, all right. Charlie makes friends with the Straight Satan's Motorcycle Club. Whoa. Then they become the security <laughs> at the compound. Okay. Uh, all right. Yeah, it's, it is a lot. In the midst of all this, Charlie is told that his friend, Gary Hinman, is about to come into a large sum of money from his inheritance. And what Charlie thinks he needs is some more money to help his problem. Okay. All right. This this is expanded so quickly. Yes. There's so much going on. Yeah. <laughs> and they're they're still at the ranch currently. Yes. With this George guy. Yep. Still at the ranch. Okay. All right. So now Charlie's trying to figure out how he can obtain some fast cash from his buddy Gary. So Manson orders family members Bobby, Mary Brunner, and Susan Atkins to go to Gary Hinman's home and convince him to hand over some money. And Hinman was like, "Fuck no, you can't take my money." So uh, yeah. After being held hostage in his own home for a couple days, Manson gets antsy and comes over to the home and cuts Hinman's ear with a sword. A couple days? Bobby, Mary, and Susan were like, you can't fucking leave until you give us money? Yeah. Oh my. Okay. So then he's like, I'm going to speed up this process and so he sliced his ear with the sword. Oh my. The swords. Yeah. Ninjas. Ninjas. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Bobby ends up killing Hinman with two stabs to the chest and uses Hinman's blood to write political piggy Mm. and a black panther paw on the wall to implicate the Black Panthers in the murder. So now they're also trying to use this to incite the race war. And this is his friend. This is his friend. Yeah. Oh my. No one's safe. Nope. Okay. Bobby ends up getting arrested shortly after when he's found sleeping in Hinman's own car, wearing bloody clothes with the murder weapon in the trunk of his car. Okay. Not a good look, Bobby. Yeah. Uh, Maybe ditch the car? Yeah. Don't sleep in it? Um, Okay. So now we're on to uh, the Tate murders. Oh my. This is the big one, right? One of the big ones, yes. Uh, Okay. Uh, This is probably the most well-known one. All right. So, Sharon Marie Tate Polanski was born January 24th, 1943 in Dallas, Texas, and she was one of Hollywood's most prominent actresses in the summer of 1969. Okay. Her father was an officer in the army, and as such, with that military lifestyle, the Tate family moved around a lot. Yeah. By age 16, she had moved and lived in six different cities and found it difficult to make and maintain friendships because of this. Yeah. She was described as shy and lacking self-confidence. As she matured, people would comment on her looks and she would enter beauty pageants. Uh Before she could enter the Miss Washington pageant, her father was stationed in Italy and the family had to pack up and move again. While there, she attended an American school not far from where they were living and she started to form very close friendships with her peers for the very first time. And she felt like a really close connection with them as they were all going like through similar problems, being military brats and having to move all the time. Yeah, Okay. So she's finding her people. Yeah. Uh, there, there was a movie being filmed nearby, and Tate and her friends went to go check it out. And it's there she meets Richard Beimer, an actor and filmmaker, and the two start dating. Okay. Richard is ultimately the one who encourages Sharon to explore her acting career and her dreams. Okay. You know, I'm not really sure uh, what she looks like. One moment. Doop. 
Sharon Tate. Doop. Oh, oh. Yeah, she's beautiful. She's gorgeous. Okay. She's got that little subtle mousy look. Mm-hmm. But okay. It's like she doesn't know she's beautiful. Yep. Oh, all right. Okay. So on August 8th, 1969, these dreams would come to a shattering end when her, her unborn child, and two family members are slaughtered by the Manson family cult. She was pregnant? Yep. She was hanging out with two friends. Oh, man. Okay. So Sharon Tate and her husband, Roman Polanski, were renting a home in the canyons of Beverly Hills on Cielo Drive. Okay. Uh, Where their house was was, like, kind of isolated, and, like, the closest neighbors were, like, a little ways down the road. Okay. On August 9th, 1969, eight-and-a-half-month pregnant Tate. Eight-and-a-half months? Yeah, she was about to pop. Oh, my God. Okay. Yeah, and we know how Harley was when she was about to pop. Like, she was ready. (laughs) Yeah, she ready to have that baby. (laughs) Maverick was huge. Yes. (laughs) Okay. So, Uh, these friends were Abigail Folger, Wojciech Frakowski, and Jay Sebring. Whoa. Yes. Wojciech? Wojciech. The only reason I know how to say that is because Whitney has a like uh, relationship with the Somerville Orchestra at the library, yeah. and the, one of the conductors' name is Wojciech. Oh, that's fun. Yep. Okay, I like that. And All Abigail right. Folger is Folger, the coffee, the, the coffee goddess. <gasps> yep. Get out of here. Yep, her dad was the coffee goddess. So this is obviously a very prominent area. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. All right. Oh, my. So all the friends and Sharon were having a little sleepover, and Roman was not home for the night. Uh, as we get into the later hours of the night, as Scar's mama says, ain't nothing good happening after dark. <laughs> ain't nothing good happening after dark. <laughs> Tate's neighbors say that they thought they heard gunshots and a man screaming, but didn't call the police. Oh, oh. Okay. Awkward. Yeah. Uh, even later after this occurred, a private security guard that worked for the property owners in the neighborhood said he also heard gunshots and called the LAPD immediately. Yeah, good job. Thank you for doing your job. <laughs> yeah. Manson had instructed the cult members, Tex, Susan Atkins, Linda Kasabian, and Patricia Krenwinkel to enter the residence and destroy everyone in it as gruesome as you can. What was the point of this? Oh, well, okay. I guess you'll tell me. Oh, I'm going to tell you. Oh, my God. Okay. So as the four family members are entering the property, they come upon Stephen Parent, who was visiting William Garretston, the property caretaker. Okay. okay. So, Tex sees Stephen leaving, stops him, swings a knife at him, and shoots him four times. Oh my god. Tex then breaks into the house by cutting open a screen on a window downstairs and lets Atkins and Krenwinkel in while Kasabian was keeping watch at the end of the driveway. Okay. The three family members then find Tate, Folger, and Frakowski and Sebring in the home. Uh. Tate and Sebring got tied up together and Folger was taken into another room. Frakowski was tied up with a towel, but he ends up being able to get out of it. Okay. When Frakowski gets away, he runs into the Atkins, who stabs him in the legs, and then he ran into Tex who hits him in the head with the gun, shoots him and stabs him multiple times. Oh my God. This is so, so much is happening. Yeah. Uh, Sebring was then shot and stabbed seven times. Oh my. Folger ends up getting out of the room she was held hostage in, but gets captured by Krenwinkel. Folger ends up being stabbed by both Tex and Krenwinkel for a total of 28 times. (gasps) Oh my God. I I know you're going to tell me, but is it because they're all like famous people? Or not famous, but like rich people? 
No. Oh. We're, it's, okay. This is an f- interesting one. Okay. So while this is happening, Frakowski is halfway across the lawn, remember, because he escaped. Yeah. And Tex tracks him down and stabs him 51 times. Oh, my. They were all drugged out, I'm sure. I'm sure. Tate, being eight and a half months pregnant, is watching all this happen to her friends, <sighs> tries to plead for mercy from the family. Tate ends up being stabbed 16 times, and her child did not survive. Oh. Oh, my God. So that same morning, Winifred Chapman, the Tate's housekeeper, shows up at 8 a.m. for work and discovers the bodies of all four victims. Oh, my. Oh, my goodness. Can you imagine just walking in and finding that, like that horror movie scene? No. Oh, my God. Okay. All right. So, funny story about the Tate home, because it always wasn't the Tate home. Okay. The Tate home used to belong to a guy named Terry Melcher, who was a music producer that knew Manson through the Beach Boys and had rejected taking Charlie on as a client when their first meeting went poorly. Oh. Charlie was probably high at the time, and he actually beat someone up during the meeting and drugged one of Melcher's friends with LSD. Oh. Not a good first impression. Yeah, and a waste of LSD. Yeah. <laughs> Charlie thought the whole thing went amazing, but Melcher didn't have the same feelings about it and didn't want to take Charlie onto the label. But for whatever reason, Charlie was convinced that he would. So, uh, no, I'm jumping the gun. I'm going to let you continue. All right. I'm going to let you go. <laughs> It's suspected <laughs> that Terry Melcher was actually the intended victim for the uh, family yep. as revenge for rejecting Charlie's music career. Damn. So how long did they live there? Uh, oh, please. Not, oh, not, not that long. <laughs> okay. Uh, okay. It's suspected that Terry Melcher was actually intended victim for the family for rejecting Charlie's music career. Yeah. And Charlie supposedly said that he wanted Melcher dead after realizing he was never intending to promote his music. Oh, my. Okay. Uh, it could be sure luck that Melcher and his girlfriend at the time moved out of the property several months before, but Melcher's mother, Doris Day, had told him repeatedly to move out because she had heard terrifying stories from her son about Manson and his crazy antics and followers, and she was worried something bad would happen to her son if he stayed. Okay. So he used that motherly intuition to get out of there. Oh my god. So, the very next night, on August 10th, 1969, Manson and six of the family members, Leslie Van Houten, Stephen Grogan, Susan Atkins, Linda Kasabian, Patricia Krenwinkel, and Tex go cruising around looking for another home and family to destroy. This isn't the only one they did? No. This is like the first mass murder they did. Oh my goodness. Okay. So, with the Tate murder the previous night, Manson didn't go with his followers. He just instructed them on what he wanted done. Okay, so he wasn't going to involve himself. No, he was just going to tell them what to do. Okie dokie. We guess, bitch. Yeah. Uh, this time, however, he joined along because the first murder wasn't committed the way he wanted. Oh. He said there wasn't enough terror and horror involved for his taste. Uh, so it- this time he came along to make sure things are done the right way. Sounded a little terrifying. Yeah, and it sounded pretty fucking horrible, but that's just our opinion, I guess. Oh my god. Okay. So as they're driving along, they come upon a fancy, rich neighborhood that they had gone to a party in once before. Okay. One of the homes in this neighborhood belonged to the grocery store owners, Rosemary and Leno LaBianca. Because there are seven different accounts of this murder between Charlie and his hoodlums, there are some different details in here, but the, this is the gist of what happened on both accounts, or all the accounts. And this happened on the same night? Next night. Oh, my. One happened on August 9th, 1969. The next one happened on August 10th, 1969. Oh, my 
1959. God. Okay. So Charlie claims he approached the home alone originally, then brought Tex along later. When Tex and Manson were in the home, they tied up Rosemary and Leno with a lamp cord and stuck pillowcases over their heads. Oh, it's so scary. They then told the couple they were just there to rob them and no harm would come to them if they cooperated. Texan Manson collected all the cash in the home and put Rosemary, who was still tied up, in her room. Shortly after, two of the family members, Van Hooten and Krenwinkel, entered the home with instructions from Manson to kill the couple. At this point, Manson leaves the home and tells the two hoodlums to listen to whatever Tex tells them to do. <sighs> Tex started stabbing Leno repeatedly as he's crying out for help and mercy. Meanwhile, in the bedroom, Mrs. Badass Rosemary herself is taking the lamp she's tied up with and swinging it around to try and hit Dumb and Dumber to get away. Yeah, okay, good. Yeah. Van Hooten and Krenwinkel call for Tex's help because apparently the henchman can't do anything without him. Yeah. And Tex begins to stab Rosemary. Oh. Between the three disgusting morons, Rosemary had been stabbed a total of 41 times. Oh my god. That's so crazy. Yep. After they brutalize Rosemary, Tex returned to the living room to finish off Leno. Leno was stabbed 26 times and Krenwinkel carved the word war on Leno's stomach. Ugh. He also left a carving fork sticking out of the stomach and a knife in his throat. Oh my god. Yeah, it's, it's brutal. Oh, that's crazy. Uh, the henchman then took Leno's blood and spelled out death to pigs and rise on the living room wall. Oh my. And this is my favorite part, because uh, on the fridge, they tried to spell helter skelter, yeah. but since they're dumb, they spelled helter skelter instead. Helter skelter? Helter skelter. <laughs> oh my god. Oh, uh, this is crazy. Yep. Rosemary's son, Frank Struthers, Leno's stepson, who was 15, came home from a trip and oh, noticed that no. all the curtains were drawn and thought it was strange because usually they liked natural light and like letting all the yeah. windows be open and stuff. And Leno's boat was still parked and hooked up to the family car in the driveway. So he's like a little suspicious and freaked out and calls his sister to let her know what's going on. She heads over with her boyfriend, Joe Dorgan, and the two men enter the home through a side door and find Leno's mutilated body. And they call the LAPD immediately. Their 15-year-old son Mm -hmm. and daughter and son-in-law? Yeah. Oh my god. So because the two murders were in the similar fashion and committed within 24 hours of each other, you would assume the police would automatically make the connection between them right yeah definitely no No. god damn it so the tate murder was originally under the jurisdiction of the los angeles sheriff's department and the labianca murder was under the jurisdiction of the lapd oh and they they can't talk to each other because they all got it under control they all got it they all need to take care of their own murders they don't need any help nope they don't want to help each other either Uh. so initially Gerritsen, the Tate's caretaker, was arrested since he was on the property at the time the bodies were discovered and since he was probably working. Uh, Also, like, why didn't he tell the police or, like, call them and say, like, oh, yeah, I heard maybe a murder was here. But he he claims he didn't hear anything at all, which I thought was weird. What? Yeah, that doesn't... It's just odd. God damn it. And uh, we, were, we were just playing footsie on accident. Yeah. Oops. I was stepping on her crocs. I can't crocs. really feel that foot, but I was like, oh, that might be George. <laughs> no worries. Uh, oh, that's boy. Funny. Okay. So, but he was released from custody after passing a polygraph, which is bogus science, but whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's more of a, it's not a, it's not a lie detector. It's a stress detector. Yeah. 
So the sheriff's department did try to get with the LAPD about the similarities between the crimes, but the LAPD was insistent on the Tate murders being connected to drugs. Yeah. For whatever reason. The interagency communication was awful between the two at the initial start of the investigation, and the two agencies went on separate paths with their leads and investigations and came up with nothing but dead leads. (sighs) But because Charlie and the henchmen are so good at keeping a low profile, they're causing all sorts of mayhem during this. Oh my god. So they weren't caught for a while. Yeah, no, they weren't caught immediately. So while the fam was in Death Valley digging a hole for the uh, bottomless pit. What's the bottomless pit? Oh, see, they are going to dig a hole in the ground and they're going to hide out in it while the war- race war is going on. And then when it ends, they're going to emerge from the pit. Oh. Yeah, and they're all going to be saved. Okay. Underground bunker. Yes. Okie dokie. Mm-hmm. Into the worlders. Yep. All right. Cool. <laughs> uh, so they burned some machinery that belonged to the Death Valley National Monument, which is not good. Oh. Uh, yeah. The bottomless pit was going to be where the family wrote out the whole race war, alter skeletal bullshit until things calmed down. Yeah. Now, as you can imagine, burning machinery can call some attention <laughs> to the pit. Yeah. And the police raided the Death Valley ranches. Okay. During this raid, the cops find multiple stolen vehicles and made about a dozen arrests. Manson was found hiding under a bathroom sink. Oh. Okay, so this is whenever they find him. Oh, he was hiding under the sink. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. He left all of his family members that cannot fit under the sink. And just hid under the sink. (laughs) Okay. So one of the henchmen, Kitty Lutzinger, who was Bobby's girlfriend, uh, is one of the family members who gets arrested and once the LAPD found out the connection she had to Bobby, who was arrested for murdering uh, Hinman. Yeah. They start questioning her, and she's singing like a canary. All right. Kitty singing. She tells the detectives that Manson was looking for a bodyguard from some motorcycle gang to look after Spawn Ranch. Okay. She also tells them that Atkins was one of the people involved with the Hinman murder and that her that her boyfriend was arrested for. Oh, okay. While this is going on, Atkins is bragging to her bunkmates in jail about the Hinman and Tate murders. Okay. Yep. She, uh, all right. The bunkmates tell detectives about what they heard, and this fully ignites the investigation into the Manson family and their murders. Then the cops are able to connect all three murders together. Okay. They're connecting the dots. So the police are collecting physical evidence that connects Texan Krenwinkle to the crimes, including fingerprints, a 22 caliber revolver that was found near the Tate property. And funny thing about that gun, the cops didn't even find it when they initially searched that crime scene. The homeowner that it was found in, uh, named Bernard Weiss, found it in the backyard and he turned it over to the LAPD. Uh, oh, so they threw it they in threw someone's it. yard. They threw it in someone's yard uh, okay. when they were leaving the crime scene. Okay. So, arrest warrants were issued by the LAPD for Tex, Kasabian, Krenwinkel, for the La Bianca, and Tate murders. Kasabian turned herself in when she heard about the warrant. She was in New Hampshire at the time. Krenwinkel and Tex were apprehended in Texas and Alabama. Oh my. That is so crazy. Mm-hmm. So, total, six people? Total? Uh, Yes. Oh, my God. Six and a half, if you include the baby. And Charlie. Yeah. And Charlie didn't do any of it. Technically did not do any of it. Interesting. But he ensued it. Yeah. He planned it. Yeah. God, that's so crazy. And he's, uh, I couldn't find, like, it's never been confirmed, but they also suspect that the family murdered, uh, like, about a dozen other people that they just couldn't prove. Yeah. Which, or, or that weren't as prominent. Prominent. 
Yeah. Oh my god. That's, that's but basically, so he's just doing this for revenge. He's like, I'm pissed because I'm not a rock star or rich. Yeah. This guy wouldn't take me onto his label, so I'm gonna kill him. And then and it wasn't even him. It was the new people who lived in the home. Mm-hmm. Oh my god. Yep. That's so wild. Same. I don't understand. Oh man. Uh, well, now we need to get on to part four. Yeah. Now we're gonna go to the trial. Oh my. All right. I'm very excited. I'm excited to hear how this ends. Yep. So is Ducky and George. Yes, they are. Oh. So we'll catch you guys in part four. And before you go, oh, follow yeah. us on Instagram. Yeah. At hashtag murder pod. Spell it all out. Yeah. And if you like this, give us five stars. Yeah. And if, if you like puppies that are as cute as Duck and George, <laughs> share us with your friends. Yeah, and your dogs. Yep. <laughs> or if you're cat people, we have one of them too. Yeah. Share us with your friends. Uh, kitty catness. All right. Well, thanks for hanging out. Love, Love you. you. Bye. Bye. Maybe don't do LSD and join a cult and then murder six people. I don't know. That's, real, that's a lot of blood. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Thank you for listening to Hashtag Murder. Episodes are written and edited by Alex Lewis and Scarlett Hipton. Our intro and outro music is written and played by Derek Branton. Our cover art is by the lovely Lauren Walker. And our name was created by the most wonderful, supportive, and super hot boyfriend, Dustin Branton. We hope you've enjoyed your time with us. And if you have any questions, comments, concerns, or ideas, you can reach us at hashtag murderpod at gmail.com. That's H-A-S-H-T-A-G murderpod at gmail.com. And don't forget to tell all of your friends about us. Thanks. Bye. Are you on two or three? Or am I on? You're on the wrong one. We're switching the order. Ah, one moment. Wait, hold on. Maybe I'm on the wrong one. Two? Oh, yep. I'm on the wrong one. Whoopsies. That's okay. <laughs> anyway, I'm burpy now. <laughs> Up in time, I felt was sort of. Oh wait, what? <laughs> Text for. Uh, uh. Oh, puppies everywhere. Okay, you go help Scarlet. Lay down, babies. Go lay down. Georgie, porgie. Oh, oh, oh I skipped a little sentence. <laughs> Look at that ear. <laughs> okay, so. No. No, no ma'am. He can't hop up on the bed. He has to take potato airlines for that, and I have to pick him up.